0: Welcome to this week's edition of An Hour of Your Life. My name is Kim.
1: And my name is Steve. And I hope I can make it through this episode. I didn't charge my iPad and I'm at 1%, but it's plugged in, it's holding. So we'll see what happens.
0: I thought you would say something about the fact that I didn't have any witty comments during the opening music.
1: No. (laughs)
0: Because I honestly, I didn't have anything witty to say.
1: Well... I, I hope that improves feeling, before we get into the podcast. I'm not today. feeling
0: very woody today. Yeah. I'm kind of tired.
1: Oh, it's been a great week, though. I mean, as far as temperature. Oh, it's beautiful out. It's been out. cool. It was almost fit in the 50s this morning. But tomorrow we're going to get back up into triple digits again. Ew. Yeah. It's going to triple? be. Triple. Ugh. Yeah. It's going to be hot I'm so glad tomorrow. I
0: don't have to leave the house if I don't want to. That's what happens when you work from home and you have no friends.
1: Well, lucky you. What, except to not for, have any friends? Except for the no friends part. I
0: mean, it is what it is. Oh, I remember something good that happened this week.
1: I know what you're going to say.
0: We have a new grand puppy. He's the cutest little guy ever.
1: His he, name is Bo.
0: His name is Beauregard Jake, and he's a little corgi, and he's so small, and he's so fluffy. Oh,
1: they named him Jake?
0: Beauregard Jake, yeah, Jake is his middle name.
1: Oh, uh-huh. after yeah, that, after
0: after his elder brother who has passed on over the rainbow bridge. Yeah, um, but Beau is the—he's just like this happy little jumpy guy, and he's adorable. And he stuck his head in my shoe, and that was really cute.
1: Yeah, he's. He's tiny. He's very small. I gotta be careful I don't step on him. He
0: is he's only he's only six weeks old I think.
1: Yeah he's just a little guy.
0: So he's very and he's a tricolor but he's got big feet so I think he's gonna be he has a sister named Georgia who is a year old year and a half something like that. Something like that yeah. And I think Georgia's pretty dainty like she's pretty small for a corgi. Well she's a corgi. Well no I mean even for a corgi I think Georgia's pretty small. I think Bo's going to be a lot bigger.
1: If the queen is listening, could you please tell us how big your corgis are?
0: I know how big the Don't you ever watch them on TV? No. Oh. They're a little stocky if you ask me, but.
1: They're probably very well fed I corgis. I bet they are. I bet she gives them like double rations every day.
0: I would hope not. That's dangerous to overfeed a corgi because then their belly drags on the ground.
1: Especially if it's snowing out. Yes. Corgis and wiener dogs do oh, not yeah. do well in deep Shout snow. Shout
0: out to Wanda. Yeah. All right, so today we are going to look at one of the most mysterious places on Earth. Steve is going to be talking about rational and plausible explanations, while I will look into the supernatural explanations, or like he's going to say, the irrational and not plausible explanations.
1: Ah, I could also say a bunch of hooey.
0: So anyway, we're going to talk about a place that is about the size of Alaska where seemingly a disproportionate number of airplanes and ships just disappear without a trace. It lies in a triangle boundary stretching from Miami, Florida, as the far western point, to Puerto Rico as the most southern point, to Bermuda as the most northern point on the triangle. Can
1: you guess where we're talking about? I mean,
0: it's been called many different things, but we will call it the Bermuda Triangle. It's also been called the Devil's Triangle, but we're going to call it the Bermuda Triangle. Yeah. Which well, is interesting because why isn't it called the Puerto Rican tri- Triangle or I the... don't know. Or the Miami Triangle because those are points too. Like, why do you have to call it the Bermuda Triangle? Or
1: the Atlantic Triangle. Yeah. There's a lot of names that could be called. Anyway. Anyway, without a doubt, within these boundaries, a large number of ships and airplanes have disappeared without a trace. Some people will say a disproportionate amount of planes and ships have disappeared But I say statistically, this just doesn't add up. Hmm. Reporter and U.S. Navy veteran Howard Rosenberg wrote an article for Naval History and Heritage Command that sums it up very well. So we're just going to quote him here. The Triangle area happens to be in one of the most heavily traveled regions in the world. And the greater number of ships and planes, the greater the odds that something will happen to some. Simon Boxall, who is an oceanographer at the University of Southampton, says, About a third of all registered and privately owned ocean craft in the U.S. are in the states and the islands of the Bermuda Triangle. And according to the 2016 figures from the Coast Guard, 82% of incidents in this area that year involved people who had no formal training or experience of being at sea, he added. So you take a third of the entire boating population of the United States, you dump them in the Bermuda Triangle, and you're going to get mysterious vanishings. Now, yes, there might be some
0: there are more other...
1: compared to big shipping lanes, okay,
0: but, but and there's also, a lot of inexperienced
1: boaters out there.
0: Okay, fair enough. But it's more than just disappearances,
1: I've got... as we
0: will discuss
1: I've got answers.
0: It's more than just disappearances. I've
1: got answers.
0: All right. So to kick us off, we're going to tell you the story of probably the most famous disappearance in the Bermuda Triangle. As a side note, American author Vincent Gaddis coined the term Bermuda Triangle in the cover article for the February 1964 issue of Argosy Magazine. And guess where he was from? Ohio. Ohio. Uh, not Dayton, I don't think, but he's from Ohio. This article kicked off the legend and the myth of the Bermuda Triangle, which launched untold conspiracy theories, scientific investigations, paranormal explanations, supernatural explanations, and the creation of an urban legend of epic proportions. And we're going to tell you the story and offer possible explanations so you can decide what you choose to believe. So with that, let's get into this week's episode.
1: On the 5th of December, 1945, a flight of five U.S. Navy TBM Avenger torpedo bombers took off from Naval Air Station Fort Lauderdale for a routine navigation and bomber training mission over the Bahamas. There was a lot of radio traffic, but it was sporadic during the flight, indicating that they were experiencing compass and navigation problems. Despite all this, neither the aircraft nor the 14 men which were comprised of six Navy and eight Marines aboard those aircraft were ever seen again. A Martin PBM Mariner with 13 men aboard was launched from Naval Air Station Banana River. I like that name. (laughs) To search, but you don't like bananas.
0: I know, but that's a fun name.
1: To search for the missing aircraft, but it also never returned and disappeared, never to be seen again, just like Flight 19. Now, it is speculated that the PBM was the victim of probably an in-flight fire.
0: Okay, but where did the fire come from?
1: I'll get to that. <laughs> Despite one of the largest air and sea searches in history up to that time took place, no confirmed confirmed trace of the Avengers or the PBM or the men aboard the aircraft has ever been found. It remains... One of the greatest aviation mysteries and was the most significant leading to the Bermuda Triangle because up to that time, it wasn't there. It was just this Pulp Magazine article that...
0: What the Bermuda Triangle was? Yes.
1: It wasn't ever identified as anything suspicious. It was this Pulp Magazine article that coined the Bermuda Triangle and brought it up.
0: I love love pulp comics and stuff like that. I think it's a really cool style of artwork. Anyway, that has nothing to do with anything...
1: So a board of inquiry was conducted, but their conclusion was not exactly helpful. One of the quotes in the in their conclusion said, We are not even able to make a good guess as to what happened.
0: Well <laughs> okay, so basically any theory that I throw out is just as likely as any theory that you're gonna throw out. According to
1: They're the all board theories. of inquiry. They're all theories.
0: All equally valid. Can I get you to admit that? (laughs) You said it right here in the board of inquiry. They said we are not even able to make a good guess.
1: Well, they were not considering alien abduction. They were considering...
0: But that's a possibility. However, anyway, people being people have come up with some conclusions of their own. Kim. Some are based in trying to follow the facts and use a scientific approach and some theories are just out there, like the family of Bigfoots that have something to do with the disappearance within the Bermuda Triangle. Now, those people... That is people, not a good guess
1: as to what happened.
0: No, those people are just making other, like, legitimate cryptozoologists look bad. Although some refer to... Um, that is
1: actual a theory by some.
0: I, though, like I said, those people just, like, the crackpots like that make legitimate cryptozoology look Like that's why people think that cryptozoologists are the way, like that's why they think of us the way that they do Mm -hmm. because of crackpots like that. Anyway, Mm -hmm. some refer to this flight as the Lost Patrol, but Flight 19 was a routine training mission called Navigation Problem Number One, which is kind of an interesting interesting name. Can you kind of explain that a little bit? Like what does that mean, Navigation Problem? Well,
1: they had a syllabus. These guys were in training to be...
0: Pilots like be, fighter well, pilots, they,
1: they, bomber pilots, okay. torpedo bombers, and so they were getting training. And there, there's a syllabus, and this was just the the curriculum for that. It was flight training uh, problem number one, and so oh, that, that's so like it,
0: number one on like a test.
1: Yeah, it, oh, okay. it, it was it, it was a pre planned course and route. It right. was just I number just one. Didn't understand, They're,
0: like problem number one, like what is that? But okay, I see what you're saying now. It's not problem like. Like problem, like what I'm thinking of, it's no, problem it's, as in like question no. number one on a
1: navigation test. problem number one. So there was probably a book with okay the, what they were supposed to do, the flight plans, and there was probably a number two and a number three. I got gotcha. you. So they were flying navigation problem number one. Okay, and, and the reason it's not called a patrol is because a patrol is going out for looking for things like a a war patrol or a sea patrol or on the ground just a patrol. Right. This was a. Training mission, training
0: exercise. Gotcha. And Flight 19 refers to the fact that this was the 19th and final flight of that training being conducted for that class of aviators. So, like after they graduated, there would probably be Flight 1 again for the next group in their right. next and training. So, I
1: mean, it was probably whatever year. So, if they started in January, probably be January. Well, this was December of 45. So, yeah. this probably would have been class. Okay. Yeah.
0: So um, their designated route was to depart Naval Air Station, Fort Lauderdale, fly 91 degrees for 56 miles, which is about 20 minutes, to hens and chicken shoals in the Bahamas and conduct low-level torpedo runs on a concrete target for about 30 minutes.
1: The flight was then to continue on a heading of 91 degrees for another 67 miles then turn left and fly 346 degrees for 73 miles where they would cross Grand Bahama's island along along the way and then fly 241 degrees for 120 miles back to Naval Air Station Fort Lauderdale.
0: So basically they were to fly east practice their bombing run and then turn left and fly just about due north and then turn left again and fly southwest back to their base.
1: Exactly. They, they just made a triangle. Okay. The instructor for the flight was Lieutenant Charles Carroll Taylor, United States Navy Reserve, who was a combat veteran and served aboard the USS Hancock. And if you're a Navy guy and you're interested in that, that would be CV-19 in the Pacific during World War II. Lieutenant Taylor had a total of 2,509.3 hours of flying time and 606 hours of that alone was in the Avenger.
0: So he was an experienced pilot with extensive flying time flying over the open waters of the Pacific during World War II in this plane. Well, I, yeah. I mean, not this yeah. specific plane, but that model of plane.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, he could have had; he probably would have had to gone through this training too. So, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah.
0: he—they were in an Avenger, weren't they? Yeah. Yeah. So he's got six hundred and six hours of his two thousand five hundred hours in the Avenger. So yes. he's he knows what he's doing.
1: Yeah, he knows what he's doing. That's why he's an instructor pilot. But this was the first time Lieutenant Taylor would be leading this particular navigation exercise as he had just recently transferred up from Naval Air Station Miami.
0: And the other four pilots, one Navy and three Marines, were far less experienced. Remember, they are students. They averaged about 300 hours each with about 60 hours in the Avengers, so about a tenth of what uh, Lieutenant Taylor had.
1: But they were all even though they were less experienced, they were still qualified naval aviators. I mean, they'd gone through flight training school. Right. And with that 300 hours, that, that was enough time for them to be commercial pilots, too. So they,
0: 300 more hours than I have.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, the, nowhere near the experience as Taylor, but they weren't exactly...
0: Rookies. Rookies, yeah. This would be their third and final time flying a basic navigation problem. Four of the aircraft carried two crewmen each who were undergoing advanced combat aircrew training in the Avenger. The fifth aircraft only had one air crewman, as Corporal Alan Costner, USMC, had asked to be excused from the mission. Which is interesting because he's not gonna be the only one that asked to be excused, and I find this really interesting. Prior to the flight, all the aircraft received their normal, thorough pre-flight check confirming fuel tanks were full, enough for five and a half hours of flight. All survival gear was in place and instruments were checked. The most significant discrepancy was that all five planes were missing their 24-hour clocks, but those were apparently a commonly pilfered item. So it was not considered a no-go as all pilots are supposed to have a wristwatch, so they don't really technically even need their clock. And the weather was briefed as favorable with seas running moderate to rough.
1: But they weren't going to be on the seas.
0: Right. So not it's kind of irrelevant, yeah. theoretically.
1: So the flight was scheduled to take off at 13.45 or one forty-five in the afternoon. But Lieutenant Taylor showed up late for the briefing without giving a reason. Lieutenant Taylor asked the duty officer to find another instructor pilot because he didn't want to take this flight out.
0: So but, there you go. Now but, you've got two people that, like, don't want to go on this flight. And who know? I don't know. I You just hear stuff like that. You know, like, people on the Titanic or people that were on board one of the planes that was supposed to fly on September 11th. And they say, I just had a weird feeling and I just didn't want to go. It
1: could have been it. But there was no other instructor pilot available. So they, they denied his request. Now, some people have drawn the conclusion that maybe Lieutenant Taylor was... Had a premonition like you just did, or he was. Some people have drawn the conclusion that he was getting over a hangover. That's possible. <laughs> I'm assuming that he was a responsible officer and pilot, and he knew the cutoff time for alcohol consumption before flying. And so I, I kind of dismiss the the hangover theory, mm. but. Some people said that he was having girl troubles. And if you fly, your mind is supposed to be 100% focused on that, especially if you have other people
0: in your aircraft. And you're teaching other people.
1: So I I guess the girl trouble theory could be possible too. But, you know, he had something on his mind, but it's more likely than not that he could have had an earache, a stomach bug, the flu, or any other number of physical ailments that... He would have been perfectly right and correct in his duty, actually, to request not to fly that day. Because, you know, if they're flying up, you know, these cabins weren't pressurized. And mm. if he's up flying high and he has an earache, it could be excruciating like, and it could be bad. Yeah, or if he's
0: rupture his eardrum,
1: rupture his eardrum. Or if he's flying, he's sick, Vomits you know, trying to throw over. up or something. Yeah, yeah, it's just so I don't possibly he had a premonition but more than likely
0: premonition. I don't mean like he's psychic or anything, but I just mean that like weird feeling in your gut where you know, like, I don't know. This doesn't feel right. Yeah.
1: But that's what I'm calling a premonition, but I'm, I'm thinking more likely than not. I'm again, I'm, I'm going with, he is a responsible pilot and he knew, and that again, that was his duty. If he wasn't up to flying for whatever physical, he needed to be in the top 100% for this. Yeah. So that that's what I'm going with. So the flight took off at 2.10 in the afternoon, and it was led by one of the trainee pilots. Now, Lieutenant Taylor was at the rear of the formation because he was the instructor. They, he wasn't the one getting trained and tested on how to do this. Right. It was the object of the other pilots to navigate and lead and conduct this mission. And so
0: kind he, of like grading them. So he, he needs to be able to see what they're doing.
1: Yeah. And so he's back at to the, the back. back, you know, they're, it's up to them to navigate correctly. Yeah. And their flight was supposed to return at 1723 or 523 PM.
0: So just a little over what, three hours? Yeah. Something like that. Now, initially, everything seemed to be going as planned. The tower at Naval Air Station, Fort Lauderdale, heard communications from Flight 19 indicating that it was finishing up the bombing practice. And then at 1540, so 340, came the first sign of trouble. Now, this is how, let's see, they left at 1410, and now it's 1540. Um, By this time, the flight should have made the turn from flying east at 91 degrees to generally north at 346 degrees.
1: Yeah, so a compass has 360 degrees, so they're just a couple degrees off.
0: This part's going to be a little bit technical, um, and I'm not going to try to transform everything into regular time. It doesn't really matter. Just keep in mind, you know, like 1410 to 1540, like that's not, you know. That's not a super long time. At that time, the senior flight instructor at Fort La- Lauderdale, Lieutenant Robert F. Cox, was airborne, joining up on his flight to fly the same navigation problem one route that Flight 19 was on when he heard communications that he assumed to be between Lieutenant Taylor and Captain Edward J. Powers, one of the trainees, the, um, one of the uh, Marine Corps guys. Although Cox did not know for sure at the time who was transmitting, he believed that an aircraft or a boat was in distress. The voice kept asking Powers for a compass reading before Powers finally said, I don't know where we are. We must have got lost after that last turn.
1: So again, uh, Cox was flying the same
0: route, mission. And yeah, he just right. overheard some radio well chatter. Yeah, but what
1: I was getting back to was the earlier question, navigation exercise problem one yeah he's flying he just picked up the same book and that's what he was flying right so at this point cox informed fort lauderdale that either planes or boats were lost after several unsuccessful radio attempts cox finally made contact with lieutenant taylor and asked what the trouble was lieutenant taylor told cox both my compasses are out and i'm trying to find fort lauderdale florida Boy, I wish we had the recordings like we did, like on the other Oh, Fitzgerald. yeah, that would have been cool. His aircraft would have had both a gyro compass and a magnetic compass, but both compasses were out. Now, or can not you, working.
0: Can you explain what those are?
1: Yes. So most everybody's going to be used to a magnetic compass. Yeah, so it's the, the needle magnetized, it points towards North. N- yeah, we'll just say north. There's magnetic Ish. north, there's two north and all that good stuff. <laughs> now a gyro compass. Is a mechanical compass that is electrically powered and it uses mm. a bunch of different gyroscopes and it just, it's a mechanical compass. Okay, I don't really
0: know what a gyroscope yeah. is, but all you needed to say is that there's one that was magnetically powered and one that is electrically powered. How it's very me- interesting. It's mechanical. Interesting. But it needs
1: electrical power. Okay.
0: That's fascinating.
1: Taylor, can t- I've got an answer for that. <laughs> Taylor continued in saying, I'm over land, but it is broken. You know, he's probably looking at islands. He Mm -hmm. said, I'm sure I'm in the Keys, meaning the Florida Keys, south of Florida, but I don't know how far down, and I don't know how to get to Fort Lauderdale.
0: Now, remember, he had just come from Miami, where he would have flown over the Keys many times. And the islands of Bahamas, they were over, do look similar to the Florida Keys.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's just a group of small... Keys, islands, and stuff like that. So Cox gave Taylor instructions for how to get from the Keys back to Fort Lauderdale, but Lieutenant Taylor sounded rattled and confused
0: because he wasn't over the Keys.
1: Well, he was he was lost. He didn't know where he was. So you know, maybe and this goes back to maybe he was ill. He had the flu or something, and something you're not thinking straight. Yeah. Yeah. So we we don't know. After several more confusing exchanges, Lieutenant Taylor asked for Naval Air Station Miami to see if they had Flight 19 on radar. Cox asked Taylor um, if he had his emergency IFF gear on. Now, IFF is basically a transponder. It's a, it's for identification, friend, or foe. So he can flip this and it will send out and radar can pick it up and it'll give a specific mm. code. And so the, it, it'll just help the radar people identify this Figure plane out where he is from other planes that would be in the area. Gotcha. So, yeah. So this would just help Cox try to identify and know exactly where he's at. So he could help steer him home.
0: Right. Okay. But so, but he didn't have it on,
1: but he could have turned it on.
0: Oh, he, okay. Yes. Yeah. He he did not have it on, but he could have turned it on at 1600. So remember, he first started, um, they first got lost at uh, 1540 is when they did not make their turn where they should have. So and we know
1: that because they made their torpedo runs. Right.
0: So about 20 minutes later, so all this happened in the span of a very short amount of time, Lieutenant Taylor reported visibility of 10 to 12 miles. This could possibly explain why Taylor did not use the sun, which would have been setting in the west to navigate back to Florida, as he just didn't have good visibility. At that time, Cox observed very rough sea covered with white caps and streamers. At the time, surface winds were 22 knots, but visibility was good in all directions except directly west.
1: Where the sun would have been.
0: By 1626, so 26 minutes later... Air Sea Rescue Task Unit 4 at Port Everglades was monitoring the communications and also contacted Naval Air Station Fort Lauderdale and Naval Air Station Miami to see if anyone could get a radio direction finding fix on the flight.
1: And that's where that IFF would have come in handy. Yeah. So I'm thinking he is ill. Something's going on with this because being that of experience of a pilot. If he can't see the sun or he can't see west where the sun should be but he's got clear field of vision everywhere else
0: then he knows he, he the knows sun is there should so you're be that pointing way. this way yeah
1: Right so he I would think that he should have been able to figure that out That's why I'm kind of leaning towards what we talked about earlier that he's ill right. and he's he's just not thinking clearly so, merchant ships in the area were notified, and several Coast Guard cutters made ready to get underway, but communication delays and interference from Cuban radio stations slowed the efforts. The radio that, the radio fix they would have been using would have been on AM radio waves. The flight radios would have been in the AM band, and Cuban radio would have been AM2. So you remember back in the day before satellite radio, we had AM and FM radio?
0: Mm, okay, we, still, so, we were listening to AM the other day.
1: Yeah. So, oh, traffic report? Yeah. Whatever it was. Yeah. But so it, it wasn't that the Cubans at this time, we didn't have the relationship with Cuba like we do now. So it wasn't like the Cubans were jamming and not doing that. It was just their their music they were playing was interfere, yeah. interfering with this.
0: So at 1628... Air Sea Rescue suggested to Taylor that another plane in the flight with a working compass take the lead. And again, this kind of goes along with your theory, too. Like, why wouldn't he have thought of this sooner on his own? This was followed by fragmentary communications amongst the Flight 19 aircraft about where they were, but no other aircraft appeared to take the lead. Now, it seems obvious, but I can imagine that the trainees were hesitant to take the lead from their instructor pilot, you know maybe it was military discipline although i do think it's weird that he didn't think of that himself
1: yeah maybe he was embarrassed i don't know maybe he maybe he just thought one of them would take charge and say something you yeah. know and maybe the other pilots the trainees maybe they thought this was a test that taylor was putting them so under so he
0: might have asked them and they thought oh this is a, a trick
1: yeah And Or maybe he would just let it go, hoping they would figure it out. Yeah. And the other guys just thought, well, you know, this is part of our navigation exercise. But again, that's only pure speculation on my part that I would even consider that.
0: Yeah. So by now, Cox was flying south from Fort Lauderdale to attempt to locate Flight 19 because he believed Taylor, when he said that... He thought they were over the keys, so just like we said earlier, Taylor was an experienced pilot, so there was no reason, and he'd been over the keys a bunch of times because he'd been at Miami, so there's no reason for Cox not to believe him that he was in the keys somewhere. But instead of communications growing stronger, they were getting weaker, meaning their airplanes were getting further apart. And then Cox's transmitter lost power. Cox, who was the senior flight instructor later testified that he then concluded that flight 19 was actually over the Bahamas and flying to the North. So this is when, you know, like he got to, he couldn't, he's thinking clearly. Yeah. His transmitter lost power. He didn't have any earaches or anything. And this is where he was like, Oh wait, I bet he's actually somewhere in the Bermuda.
1: Yeah. So he was flying that way. The radio was getting, so he knew they were flying apart. Yeah. And if he was flying toward the keys, the radio signal should have been stronger. Yeah. But So he's thinking rationally. He's right. thinking clearly. Yeah. So at 1630 or 430, the Naval Air Station Fort Lauderdale duty officer notified the flight officer of Flight 19's difficulty. The flight officer quickly understood that if Flight 19 had flown the first leg of the mission correctly, which they knew it had because they'd made the runs, that there was... Time distance, it wasn't feasible for him to bend over the Florida Keys. Yeah, he just have got there that He just past. did the quick math and looked at it, and said, "Can't be done." Yeah. The flight officer notified Air Sea Rescue to instruct Flight 19 to proceed on course west, which is 270 degrees, or toward the sun. Which this was a standard procedure for any lost aircraft from Naval Air Station Fort Lauderdale in the afternoon. Follow the sun. You don't need a compass. You'll Follow get the sun. There. You're going to hit the Florida coast. Yeah. By 1630, Naval Air Station Fort Lauderdale Operations Officer was in telephone contact with Air Sea Rescue, and by this time, they all agreed that Flight 19 was almost certainly lost somewhere over the Bahamas and not the Florida Keys. Operations asked Air Sea Rescue to ask Taylor if he had a, a standard homing transmitter card, It's called a YG homing transmitter card, to home in on the tower's direction finder. Taylor did not, he didn't acknowledge the query. Taylor was then requested to shift to the search and rescue frequency of 3,000 kilocycles, but Lieutenant Taylor declined, citing he needed to keep the formation together. He wanted to be able to, he didn't want to switch his radio. He wanted to be able to communicate with the other pilots.
0: I, uh, can you explain why he couldn't have radioed to them and told them all to switch to 3,000?
1: I couldn't tell you.
0: Anyway, Lieutenant Taylor indicated that he would fly 30 degrees northeast for 45 minutes to be sure they were not over the Gulf of Mexico, but seven minutes later, he said he was changing course to 90 degrees east.
1: He's very, very confused.
0: He's all over the place.
1: Yep, literally. At
0: at this time, two different students were heard on the radio, damn it, if we could just fly west, we could get home, head west, damn it which indicated that the students had a good idea of where they were over the Bahamas and not the Keys. So again, we can only wonder why one of the students didn't try to correct the situation. And
1: that's where I'm thinking they may have been waiting on thinking that they were supposed to take charge, but...
0: But they didn't take charge. But they didn't
1: take charge, and maybe Taylor...
0: I think it was more like they didn't want to be insubordinate. Yeah, so,
1: I mean, there was probably confusion on their part. Yeah. Okay.
0: Lieutenant Cox, who had landed at Fort Lauderdale, believed he knew where Flight 19 was and requested permission to take the duty plane, which was a single-seat, single-engine aircraft, to go search. However, the weather at Fort Lauderdale was starting to get bad, and Lieutenant Taylor radioed that he would proceed on 270 degrees, west so he's gonna go west until they reached land or ran out of fuel so he finally is starting to think a little bit rationally or at least listen to somebody apparently he was allowing another aircraft with a working compass to set the direction
1: so all that stuff we're talking about you know the students being afraid to speak up maybe yeah maybe somebody finally did yeah so whatever they thought they did it so, because of this course action should have brought Flight 19 back to Florida, the operations officer decided at 1736 or 536 p.m. not to let Cox go out with the duty plane. However, at 604, 1804, Lieutenant Taylor indicated that he was turning back to 90 degrees or going east, apparently still confused as to whether he was over the Gulf of Mexico or the Bahamas, so down in the Keys or the Bahamas. We can only speculate why Taylor was so confused. Was it vertigo, illness, or was he just that lost, whatever? He clearly was not thinking in his right mind. He wasn't thinking clearly. Yeah, And I, I can't even begin to speculate why he was so confused. The watch officer had quickly figured out that not enough time had passed for him to fly from the Bahamas to the Keys. So why couldn't Taylor? Some something had to be going on with him. Mm. Did he panic? Unlikely. And this is one of the great mysteries about this whole story. What was going on? Because remember, he had asked not to fly this and, mission.
0: And maybe if he was sick, like we've said, maybe, you know, a fever, fevers cause st- like a semi if you're really feverish enough then could it could delirious. cause a semi hallucinatory state but the the thing about that is that if you're having that bad of a fever you would think that before you i'm i'm thinking that like he didn't appear that sick when he initially asked can you find somebody else if somebody has that bad of a fever that they're completely disoriented and hallucinating and whatever else like they look Like, they are not able to do anything. And
1: it could have gotten worse over time.
0: That would still be really fast, though. Yeah, but, I mean, yeah.
1: assuming it was fever, it could have been anything else. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Now, by this time, the Gulf and Eastern Sea Frontier High Frequency Direction Finding, or HFDF, nets, had bearings on Taylor placing Flight 19 north of the Bahamas and east of Florida.
1: So it was about where they thought it was.
0: So um, the HD- HFDF fix had a radius of hundred miles. So that confirmed that flight 19 was not over the Gulf of Mexico and all airfields on the East coast of Florida were alerted to turn on searchlights, field lights, beacons, but no one thought to transmit this information to flight 19 at 1820 or 620. A PBY Catalina flying boat from Coast Guard Air Station Dinner Key. I all these names are really banana. Banana Station, Dinner Key Station. Um, anyway, this is near Miami. Was airborne, searching for Flight 19, but was having transmitter trouble and could not make contact.
1: Lots of radio problems.
0: hmm The last garbled messages heard from Taylor was, All planes close up tight. We'll have to ditch unless landfall when the first plane drops below 10 gallons, we all go down together. I knew you, that could you have been, thought that he was thinking rationally and clearly there. I don't know. I don't know if that that is rationally. Let's all no, die together. No, it's
1: they're, they're all going to have the same amount of fuel. I'm betting and I couldn't research this, but I'm betting that was another standard operating procedure that they're all
0: in the same place. They, they
1: all go down at the same place. So that search and rescue, you know, Only if, one, find one yeah, if, yeah. if one plane flies another five minutes, they're going to be miles and miles away. So yeah. I'm betting this was a standard operating procedure.
0: I guess that makes sense.
1: Yeah. that Again, that's I, I couldn't gather that information anywhere. It's just, but
0: that, yeah, that it sounds logical. Yeah.
1: Now, while all this was going on, the British tanker, Viscount Empire was passing through the area and reported experiencing tremendous seas and winds of high velocity, meaning ditching most likely the aircraft most likely would have been impossible. I mean, they were going to ditch, but surviving would have been nearly impossible. By this time, multi engine search aircraft had taken off from fields up and down the Florida coast. Two Martin PBM 5 Mariner flying boats at Naval Air Station Banana River, which is now Patrick Air Force Base for reference, were preparing for a regularly scheduled flight navigation training flight, but they were quickly reassigned to go out and search for the, uh, the Avengers. The pre-flight check of the PBM-5, piloted by Lieutenant J.G. Jeffrey, indicated All in order with fuel for a 12-hour flight. Now this goes back. What I said, we get to it later. Yeah. As well as no indication of any gas fumes, something which PBMs were prone to do. The nickname of the PBMs was called the flying gas tank.
0: Okay, but it looked seemed everything seemed normal.
1: It it seemed normal, but
0: okay. The position at at that time. The position stuff happens. They passed uh, to the PBMs prior to takeoff for the Lost Avengers was 130 miles east of New Smyrna, Florida. Um, And the weather conditions in the area were 8 to 1,200 foot overcast, air very turbulent, sea very rough. By 727 p.m., both PBMs were airborne from Banana River. At 19.30, 7.30, the PBM flown by Lieutenant Junior Grade Walter G. Jeffrey, U.S. Navy, made a last radio call out and was never heard from again with three pilots and 10 air crewmen aboard. At 21.15...
1: 9.15.
0: The tanker SS Gaines Mills sent a message at 19.50, so 20 minutes after Walter Jeffrey had made a radio call... They, um, the tanker observed a burst of flames, apparently an explosion, leaping flames 100 feet high and burning for 10 minutes, positioned 28 degrees, 59 minutes north, 80 degrees, 25 minutes west, at present passing through a big pool of oil, stopped circled area using searchlights, looking for survivors, none found. The captain later reported observing a plane catch fire and immediately crash, exploding on impact with the sea.
1: Okay, so remember back, the, the inquiry said there was no definite, yeah, evidence. So I, I, you almost got to assume this was what he observed because no other, no other planes reported crashing. No, but at that like,
0: time. what caused the fire to begin with? That's the mystery.
1: The flying gas tank.
0: Well, it, it was normal. <laughs>
1: It it, it was normal. It was routine. So it could have started dripping gas or fume filled up with vapors after they took off.
0: So the escort carrier USS Solomons reported tracking both PBMs on radar as Lieutenant Jeffrey split off and then suddenly disappeared from radar in the same position reported by Gaines Mills.
1: So radars confirming what, what they saw.
0: Heavy seas interfered with any attempt to locate wreckage or to put buoys in the area. The Board of Inquiry transcript includes extensive discussion of gas fumes and smoking regulations, which were strictly enforced on PBMs for obvious reasons. Although the board reached no firm conclusion, the questioning suggested an in flight fire caused by gas fumes as a likely cause. Like, likely cause. Over the next five days, a massive search was conducted at sea and overland Florida. A number of old wrecks were found, along with various floating objects, but no confirmed trace of either the Five Avengers or the PBM. Although the exact cause of the loss of the PBM is not known, it's pretty certain that some combination of fire and explosion caused the plane to go down with all aboard.
1: So what happened to Flight 19 is a mystery, because there's no evidence to say conclusively say this happened. Yeah. I tend to believe that the most likely explanation is that the aircraft ditched as they ran out of fuel as a group, like they were instructed to do by Taylor, off the coast of Florida, north of Bahamas, uh, during severe weather. The chances of survival, and I did Google and look this stuff up right here, the chances of survival of an Avenger ditched at sea are known to be marginal at best under ideal conditions, especially for the air crewmen in the back. Let alone during heavy seas. So.
0: How yeah. big is an Avenger? Are they big planes? Or are they small planes?
1: Well, I mean, it's not 747, but it's bigger than a.
0: See, and that's what my question is. There were how many of them? Like five? Five. And they didn't find any of them. They knew where they were roughly or should have been. And they didn't find any trace of any of them.
1: I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. Okay. <laughs> um. Ditching an Avenger at night in heavy seas would have almost certainly proven fatal, causing the plane to break up, and if anyone got out, they wouldn't last long in the cool December. Yeah, this is
0: the Atlantic. We're not talking the Pacific here. These are the cold waters.
1: Yeah. So, exactly why Lieutenant Taylor became so disoriented will never be known. He took control of the flight sometime after the first turn, apparently believing the training flight leader, had gotten lost. He may not have had a watch, and remember, the plane had no clock, as appeared to have no conception of time during the flight. But again, this is hard for me to believe, with him being such an experienced pilot, with extensive time flying over open water, and that's basic navigation. You fly on a course at a specific speed for a specific time, and that's how they navigate. I find it hard to believe he didn't have a watch, but he had gotten lost on three previous occasions, mm. ditching his plane at sea twice.
0: So there's a precedent.
1: Yes. And he was heard frequently asking others how long they had been on certain courses. So, mm. so there's maybe, also
0: a precedent for not having a watch.
1: Maybe he forgot to wind it. Maybe he forgot it. Maybe it broke. Maybe aliens...
0: We might... might maybe so. he
1: messed up with his watch. The Board of Inquiry concluded the leader of the flight became so hopelessly confused as to have suffered something akin to mental aberration.
0: Now, Lieutenant Taylor's mom took extreme offense at the Navy's conclusion, which I I understand, accusing the Navy of blaming her son when there were no bodies, no planes, and no evidence. With an attorney, she conducted her own investigation and petitioned the board for the correction of naval records, which concluded, quote, that an injustice is found in subject officer's record under applicable standards of naval law. Lieutenant Taylor was officially declared f- clear of blame with the conclusion the cause of the accident remains unknown. So there's the story of Flight 19.
1: Now, let's get into some possible explanations of what's going on within the Bermuda Triangle and what's causing all these disappearances. So the
0: good stuff.
1: Yeah. Okay, so you go first.
0: (laughs) Of course. Okay, so Atlantis. You all have heard about Atlantis. It was mentioned first by Plato, you know, the Greek philosopher, in his works Timaeus and Critias, and it was generally thought to be a fictional city that represents the antagonist naval power that besieges ancient Athens, which was basically the... (sighs) Ancient Athens was basically Plato's version of an ideal state in his book *The Republic*, and so that was where Atlantis was first mentioned. And people generally, like, it was pretty much agreed that it was a fake place. Um, but Plato wrote about a metal called or, or I'm probably going to say this wrong, orichalcum, and that was also long thought to be a myth. But then, in 2015, scientists found. 39 ingots of it off the coast of Sicily. Now, if you don't know, an ingot is basically like a, like a gold bar basically. So like a piece of metal, um, just kind of think of a gold bar of, of uh, or a chalcum or I'm not sure. I don't think that's how you say it, but anyway. So if that mineral is real, could Atlantis also be real? And if Atlantis is real, could we have a complete misunderstanding of ancient capabilities? Because the argument has always been made the ancient Greeks could not sail that far. Like, they they didn't have the technology. Now, don't get me wrong.
1: So we're talking, what, 300 BC here? N- yes. Okay.
0: Um. So they there is a theory. They, they didn't think that they could go that far. You um, didn't
1: think I knew that, did you?
0: I did not. But there are arguments that there's no real proof of it, but there are people that argue that um, the Greeks did have the technology to get as far as Canada. So anyway, um, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that Atlantis is in the Bermuda Triangle because I'm not, although there are plenty of people who say that it is, but Plato's description of its location is nowhere near the Bermuda Triangle. Um, Atlantis, if it is a real place, is more likely near the Straits of Gibraltar. But there is an anomaly indisputably in the Bermuda Triangle called the Bimini Road or the Bimini Wall. It's one of three distinct features, all composed of flat lying, tabular, rectangular, sub-rectangular, polygonal, and irregular blocks, each 6 to 12 feet long. So, building type blocks they're made of limestone and beach rock. But what's unusual about the Bimini Road feature is besides the like the, the type of rock that they are, it features 90 degree angles. So
1: appears to be man-made.
0: Yeah. They, these 90 degree angles and other features like the shape of the rocks and the uniformity of some of the sizes um, that suggest that they're man-made. Now, in the 1930s, famed psychic Edgar Cayce claimed that portions of the temples of Atlantis would become visible in 1968 or 1969. The Bimini Road was first sighted by a pilot in that time frame. And so that's where the story of it being part of Atlantis came from. But even though I strongly will say that the Bimini Road is not part of Atlantis because it's not even in the right part of the world. Could it be part of another ancient and lost civilization? And could this civilization have had some mineral similar to Orichalcum that affects instruments magnetically? Or could it be aliens? Hmm. When Christopher Columbus sailed through the area on his first voyage to the New World, he reported that a great flame of fire crashed into the sea one night and a strange light appeared in the distance. A few weeks later, Meteor. do you want me to read it to you? Meteor. Do you want me to read you what Christopher Columbus wrote?
1: Yes, please.
0: Okay, so this is old-timey, like 1492-style language. So I'm going to kind of jump around and a little translated bit.
1: Translated, probably from Portuguese to.
0: Yeah, uh, so I'm going to jump a little bit because it's. If I were to read the entire thing, it's just it's going to put everybody to sleep. Paraphrase. Yeah. Okay. So um, basically, uh, so it's October 11th, 1492. If you want to Google it and look up the whole thing on your own, just Google Christopher Columbus, October 11th, 1492 entry. Okay. So after sunset, they steered their former course to the west. They made up about 12 miles each hour and until two hours after midnight, made about 90 miles. And then um, about that time, a sailor named Rodrigo de Triana saw... What he thought was land, and although the admiral, uh, who I think is Columbus, at the 10th hour of the night, while he was on Stern's Cade, Stern cast, anyway, he saw a light, although it was something so faint that he did not wish to affirm that it was land. But he called Pero Gutierrez, the steward of the king's dais, and told him that there seemed to be a light, and for him to look, and thus he did and saw it. He also told Rodrigo Sanchez that there seemed to be a light and for him to look. And thus he did and saw it. And um, let's see. Boo, 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 boo. After the admiral said it, it was seen once or twice. And it was like a small wax candle that rose and lifted up, which to few seemed to be an indication of land um, but the admiral was certain that they were near the land, because of which, when they recited the salve, which in their own way they were accustomed to recite and sing, all being present, the admiral entreated, "Blah blah blah blah, watch carefully for land." And but they weren't. It, there wasn't. A, it wasn't land, essentially. So they saw like a. They saw like a light. Multiple multiple people on the ship saw a light that they said resembled a candle glimmer.
1: Okay. So this would have been the Innesheim meteorite, which, uh, impacted on the morning of November 7th, 1492. According to the Julian counter, it's That's the oldest a meteorite. whole month later. They were at sea.
0: I, okay. A meteor does not, you don't see a meteor. And then a month later it crashes. That's not what happens. <laughs> Okay. Uh, That's not how that works. Anyway, Uh, many people have reported strange lights in various crafts that mysteriously appear and disappear in the triangle. Some accounts include craft that seem to be able to transition seamlessly from air to water.
1: There are um, Navy pilots Mm -hmm. who witnessed this.
0: We're going to get into this.
1: I'll say witnessed and have cameras or film film of this. Indeed. Okay, but are those are those aliens or are they something more earthly? Like I said, good chance that was the comet. Uh CNN reports that the United States Pentagon has confirmed that a video leaked in May of 2021 is in fact a USO or an unidentified submersible object object.
0: Now, wait, wait, wait. We're not just going to gloss past this. The United States Pentagon has confirmed that, yes, they do have video of a unidentified submersible, a USO, which is basically the water version of a UFO.
1: It means they can't identify it. It could be technology that we're working on. It could be technology other countries are working on not
0: unidentifiable unidentified if it was stuff that we would be working on they well, I don't they're think not
1: I going tell to that. yeah they're not going to tell it that
0: so they would just rather say that it's aliens rather than it's a top secret thing that we can't no, talk to you they're about? going to
1: say it's unidentified and they're mm. not going to talk about it the no, whole what okay so and in case you thought areas 51 and 52 were the only places in the united states that military reverse engineered extraterrestrial aircraft allow me to introduce you to NAVSEA. NAVSEA is the Naval Sea Systems Command, or in their words, the force behind the fleet. According to its website, Division Newport is the Navy's full-spectrum research, development and test evaluation, engineering, and fleet support center for submarine warfare systems and other systems associated with undersea battle space.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay, you're jumping to conclusions. No.
0: Okay, listen, listen. One aspect of NAVSEA is AUTEC, or the Atlantic Undersea Test and Evaluation Center. They, quote, this is all taken directly from their website, provide instrumented operational areas in a real-world environment to satisfy research, development, test and evaluation requirements, and operational performance assessment of warfighter readiness in support of the full spectrum of maritime warfare. So basically... So
1: where does that say it's alien technology? Where
0: are they getting the technology from? Anyway. There's a lot created, of smart people. Created in 1958, Autech is located on Andros Island, right on the tip of the Bermuda Triangle. Near the base, there is a cavern. Now this is where we're going to get like real deep both Literally. Both literally and figuratively. Near the base, there is a cavern that runs 2,000 meters or 1.2 miles deep with cables one and a half inch thick running from land into the cavern. So they're testing
1: stuff down there.
0: But wait. Now, in the 1970s, a guy named Dr. Ray Brown. So he is a doctor. He's not just like some quack. He's a doctor. He was scuba diving near the base and he discovered a giant pyramid underwater. Mm. The pyramid was situated 22 fathoms down, stood 125, 120 feet high with only 90 feet projecting out of the seafloor shifting sands. Brown was at first struck by how smooth and mirror-like the stone surface of the structure was with the joints between the individual blocks almost indiscernible. Swimming about the capstone, which the Arizona diver thought looked like lapis lazuli, he discovered an entranceway and decided to explore further. Passing along a narrow hallway, Brown finally came to a small rectangular room with a pyramid-shaped ceiling And what was amazing was that the room contained no algae or coral growing on the inner walls and they were completely spotless. In addition, even though he had brought no flashlight, he could see everything in the room perfectly. It was very bright and well lit, but no direct light source was visible. His attention was drawn to a brassy metallic rod three inches in diameter hanging down from the apex of the center and at its end was attached a many-faceted red gem which came to a point. Now directly below the rod and the gem sitting in the middle of the room was a stand of carved stone topped by a stone plate with scrolled ends. The, uh, doesn't that sound intense? Like,
1: yep. Amazing. So, yeah. I have an explanation, but keep going.
0: (laughs) On the plate rested a pair of carved metal, bronze-colored hands, life-sized, which appeared blackened and burnt as if having been subjected to tremendous heat. Nestled in the hands and situated four feet directly below the ceiling rod gem point was a crystal sphere three and a half inches in diameter. And how do we know it's three and a half inches in diameter? I'll tell you. Brown first attempted to pry loose the ceiling rod and the red gemstone, but neither would budge. So he turned back to the crystal sphere and he found that it easily separated from the bronze hand holders and he left the pyramid with it. As he departed, Brown said he felt a presence and he heard a voice from somewhere within telling him never to return.
1: Okay. Do you want my explanation?
0: Yes. LSD. LSD. Why would you go scuba diving after taking LSD?
1: So you could see red crystals and pyramids oh my gosh. <laughs> anyway.
0: yeah, but he has it. Dr. Brown's crystal sphere, he has it. And, like he would used to tour with it and like put it out on display. He still like, he doesn't own it anymore. It belongs to somebody else now, but he's still like you can still go see this thing. It's the source of a variety of paranormal events. People have felt breezes of ionic winds blowing close to it. Cold and warm layers surrounded at various distances, other witnesses have seen phantom lights, heard voices, or felt strange tingling sensations when they were around it. A compass needle placed next to the sphere will spin counterclockwise then begin turning in the opposite direction when moved only two inches away. Metals are temporarily magnetized when they come in close contact with it. And there are even recorded instances where one person has been temporarily healed of an ailment by touching the crystal sphere. But then the next person to come into its range took on the symptoms of the ailment of the other person as if the crystal could draw out and then activate human disorders at will. What do you have to say about that, Mister Smarty Pants?
1: So the doctor has access to a lot of drugs, and he has a lot of friends that Whatever. come over. Okay. Yeah. So do you want to talk about the magical doctor and his I'm amazing just discovery?
0: Saying that. There are numerous people that have come in contact with this crystal all over the country. Like, he toured with it for a while. And these are not just, like, his buddies. They're people all over the country.
1: You Remember our show about the carnies and the... (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Anyway, what other theories are out there?
0: All right. Well, some people believe um, that the weirdness in the Bermuda Triangle can be attributed to methane bubbles that rise up out of the sea created by oil deposits within the Earth. And once the pressure builds, they erupt. And that could be some of the things that people are seeing, Um, which that would be nice. Can we please find these oil deposits because I'm tired of paying this much money per gallon of gas? Uh, There's also the wormhole. Not not allowed to drill. The wormhole theory. Some suggest that a space time shortcut probably created by the Bigfoots, according to that one stupid person, uh, that can permit time travel. There are some reports of missing ships that have shown up later. Sometimes years are missing and sometimes minutes. One pilot claims to have survived a wormhole in his small plane. And he says that he was flying back from the Bahamas and flew into a cloud funnel. So like think Twilight Zone. And within minutes, he was over Miami. So just like with Taylor and they said, there's no way that he could be here from there in that amount of time the guy this guy said that he was in this spot like he knew he was and then a few minutes later he was over miami he would have had to have flown around two thousand miles an hour to travel that distance in the amount of time that he said it took him
1: i wonder if he'd been visiting a good doctor anyway look i saw uh we we watched this the other night and think about time as a piece of paper, here's the, to visualize this, think about time as a piece of paper. And if you take the paper at both ends and you fold it towards itself, it's less distance. So if you traveled the length of a 12 inch piece of paper, it would take 12 inches. But if you fold the paper up towards itself to it touches, it's a fraction of an inch to go Mm -hmm. through. And then when it unfolds, he's on the other side. Yep. Okay.
0: Are you... Coming around to the no, idea I just, of time I just, no. discrepancies? No,
1: I was just explaining next I'm the, have the wormhole believing, theory.
0: Next I'm going to have you believing in alternative universes. Anyway. Anyway, what do you have for stupid rational explanations that nobody cares about?
1: Well, let, let's go back to Columbus real quick. Columbus did, well, no, we'll get to that in a second. So the rational explanations. The Puerto Rican Trench runs just north of Puerto Rico through the Bermuda Triangle. Now, this is the deepest trench in the Atlantic Ocean with depths over five miles. So the Atlantic, as it comes off the continental shelf of the United States, mm-hmm. is deep, but it's not that deep. But when it hits this Puerto Rican trench, it goes down five miles. Yeah. So any ship or airplane that goes down over the Puerto Rican trench has little chance of ever being found. It's just, it's going to go down into the abyss.
0: Okay. But this doesn't explain the initial reason why an airplane would go down or a ship would sink. Well,
1: mechanical troubles, whatever. Caused I'm just saying, by
0: the weird things in the Bermuda Triangle.
1: As you want to think, I'm just saying whatever causes it go down, little chance. But that's one area of the Bermuda Triangle. So we'll talk about that a little bit more. Just the vastness of the ocean, the depth of the Atlantic off the coast of Florida is around 2,800 feet deep. So, I mean, that's deep. But unless you know exactly where something went down.
0: Like they knew exactly where Flight 19 went down, roughly?
1: But, not, no, the radar wasn't that sophisticated, so they knew close, but no one's been able to find it yet. It's a big ocean. But when the Challenger went down several airplanes were located during the search for the Challenger because they were using all sorts of uh, side-scanning radar and the technology to try to locate the Challenger and the pieces of the Challenger. One site they did happen to find an Avenger aircraft, and that led a lot of people to believe that Flight 19 had been discovered. But later explorations recovered the plane and was positively identified not to be Flight nineteen. Now there's been several aircraft found and off you know in the Bermuda Triangle. How?
0: rich would you be if you f- were the one that found flight 19
1: i don't know i wouldn't even know how to start making money off that uh, i don't know if i'd want to start making money off that listen
0: there are that is a full-time job for some people treasure hunting is a full-time job for some people yes and but they know how to make the money but
1: under law those would be protected grave sites
0: oh that's true yes so okay.
1: just for a fun fact Records show training accidents between 1942 and 1945 accounted for the loss of 95 aviation personnel just from Naval Air Station Fort Lauderdale alone. Wow. So
0: that's a lot.
1: There's a lot. But again, remember, it's that well-traveled area. Yeah. Now, another explanation could be rogue waves, which are a natural phenomena that can explain the loss of ships and boats sinking so fast that distress calls can't be made. So there's no doubt in this area that it is prone to rogue waves. Simon Boxall, who we talked about earlier, says that they are possible. Anywhere you get multiple storms coming together, rogue waves are steep and tall like walls of water, and they often hit unexpectedly according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. NOAA. yeah. The Bermuda Triangle is where storms can come from all directions and quickly, like Mexico, the equator, and further east in the Atlantic Ocean. If each wave can reach over 30 feet or 10 meters tall, occasionally they can coincide at the right moment and create a rogue or freak wave that can reach over 100 feet. So this could easily explain how small ships and small boats can And they would go down quickly and not be able to get off a distress call. Yeah. Another rational theory based in science are electromagnetic (laughs) storms. It's possible that when storms converge and electrical disturbance can happen, that could affect a compass. And, you know, we were talking about Christopher Columbus and his logs. Yeah. They were noted that there were magnetic anomalies with the compass
0: yes okay yeah that was a different that was like a couple days before actually on october 8th i think or something like that yeah
1: so let me just say this when i was in my early teens i had an aunt and uncle and this is my firsthand experience here i had you've been
0: to the bermuda triangle
1: yeah you have too i had an aunt and uncle so anyway i had an aunt and uncle that lived in jupiter florida which is in the bermuda triangle my Uncle Joe was a sailor, and he'd done quite well for himself, and he always kept a yacht. Now, I'm not talking Russian oligarch size, but a yacht nonetheless. Yeah. So every summer, my aunt and uh, Joe, would they would sail from uh, from Jupiter to the Bahamas, and they would cruise around the islands, and that, that would be their vacation. So one year, I was asked if I wanted to go. And the of course, I said, "Boy, yeah, I'll, I'll go. Well, my big job was to tend the little dinghy off the, the back of the, the, the yacht. So one day we were anchored off one of the smaller outer islands when a big storm came up very, very quickly. Now, I saw St. Elmo's fire. I saw what I will just call lightning balls running between the clouds and going cloud to cloud. And I saw five waterspouts spouts on the ocean all at one time. And while this was going on, I stayed up on the, the bridge with, with my uncle because I was a young teenager, and I, it was exciting to me. I stayed up there, and the compass on the boat was just spinning wildly. It was a magnetic compass. You were
0: so lucky you didn't get sucked up I, by the forces. Yeah,
1: so I I think it electromagnetic storms had these effects on that based off the St. Elmo's fire and the... The lightning, the ball lightning running between the clouds, but I saw that firsthand. Believe it or not, but that's my firsthand testimony. And you still are a skeptic. I say that they got lost because of the electromagnetic storms. It affects the compass. That's not being skeptical. That's just saying that's my explanation. I don't think it's aliens or that pyramid underneath the ocean. You don't think
0: that it's something that you don't think that no, you don't think that the navy and their top secret Area Fifty One airbase or sea base is doing weird stuff out in the ocean that's causing stuff like that to happen.
1: This is like James Bond type
0: stuff you're uh, talking about. You know what? James Bond, like you, that watch that you're wearing right now that you can take phone calls on, that was a James Bond contraption at one point in time too. Well,
1: look, while all this was going on, I, I will admit I'm thinking Bermuda Triangle.
0: <laughs> that was Obviously. Going through my mind.
1: So... I absolutely do put stock in electromagnetic disturbances from storms <laughs> that cause the compasses to act up.
0: Okay, so I will concede a little bit. I so they the government has admitted to this top secret base under under the water. Like they've admitted to it that it's there. I will concede that the base and the top secret stuff that they have going on in the middle of the ocean could affect the weather. <sighs> I'll concede that much Okay, so to your rationality. The,
1: these, remember, let's go back to flight 19 real quick. Okay. Remember the, the weather was deteriorating. Yeah. The compasses and all that were going off. Could this have happened to flight 19? Yes. Anyway, another possible reason things are never be found is because of the Gulf Stream. Now, the Gulf Stream is essentially a river in the ocean that flows between the Bahamas and Florida. It, it actually makes a huge circle around the Atlantic Ocean. And it's, it's about 45 to 60 miles wide. Now, according to NOAA, the average speed of the current is 4.6 miles per hour. It's faster up on the, the, the surface, surface, which can get over like 6 miles an hour, and wow. it gets a little bit slower down. So it's documented that a ship that was reported sinking at one location was never found. Years later, that ship was found 200 miles north of where it was believed to have sunk, and it's attributed to it was carried by the Gulf Stream off. So a lot of these planes, so Flight 19, where they thought they were looking for them, yeah. they could be three or 400 miles north yeah, because the Gulf Stream took it. So I mean, put it simply, people are searching in the wrong place. So those are some of the different explanations of the, the Bermuda Triangle. Yeah,
0: and I mean we could go on with all the crazy conspiracy theories, like but big feet. but I think you get the idea. So when people can't see obvious reasons, there has to be another reason. Supernatural, paranormal. Conspiracy.
1: I'm thinking flat earthers right here. I'm if thinking, I can't see it, it didn't happen.
0: I'm thinking that there is something to this base and they're affecting the weather. Anyway, people have to have a reason and when a reason can't be found, the mind goes wild. Or if the answer is too simple, then that can't be accepted. There has to be more. Distrust of the... Distrust of the government that kind of deserves to be distrusted. I mean, after all, it is the government, and they have to be lying to cover something up because you can't trust a politician. Period. End of story. Full stop.
1: Hey, you can side with me being logical and rational, Boring. or you can side with Kim and the supernatural. factor fiction, factor fiction.
0: Whatever. It's fun to talk about. I guess the ocean needs a boogeyman. So I'll
1: say as we put this story together, we went into flight 19.
0: That's what we started out with. Yeah, and then is, it kind of well, we want to talk about the, from there.
1: Yeah. We, but we want to talk about the Bermuda triangle too, but yeah. flight 19. So we did a lot of research combined. And by we,
0: he means him because I didn't really do that much research.
1: You did the supernatural stuff, but we, I combined, I combined a lot of documentation from multiple, when Kim does the sources at the end of the music, You'll see. But we, we kind of put it all together in stuff that I've never heard of before and just little pieces. We put it all together to try to give you the most complete picture of Flight 19 yeah. that we could do with with this story right there.
0: Yeah, and there are lots of – um, I, I know you – I saw you watching lots of – little short documentaries and little films about it that are out there. Um, so if you want to learn more about flight 19 than what we could give you, or if you want to hear more like interviews and more firsthand information, there's tons of resources out there yeah. because everybody loves a good mystery. And so everybody wants to solve it. So, gain fame and notoriety for themselves, I guess.
1: Yep. So drop us a line and tell us whose side you are on. Are you on team Kim team, Wright. Or on Team Steve. Team wrong. Logical and rational. (laughs) Bottom line is we like to say, do Do your your research research and educate educate yourself. Yep. All right. Well, I guess that's going to wrap up the Bermuda Triangle and Flight 19.
0: Indeed, indeed. Um, I will say uh, this is a total plug for myself. I spent a lot of time working on the website over the last couple of weeks
1: Go uh, visit the website.
0: It is an hour of your life.com. Super easy. Um, I, Let me know. Really, honestly, let me know what you think of it. Uh, if you if you go check it out, um, drop us a line. You can actually leave feedback directly on the website or you can email us at, at ugh, you can email us at a lost hour at gmail.com.
1: Well, if you leave the feedback on the website, it's going to go to.
0: Yeah. So it, it doesn't matter. Either way, it goes to the same place in the end. Um, but I really would like to hear from people uh, letting me know, what do you think about the colors? What do you think about the content? Is there anything that you would like to see? Anything that you think is uh, you missing, know, missing, anything that you want to know more about? I really um, have kind of taken the the website is kind of become sort of my baby, and I really want to hear feedback. So let me know yes. what you think.
1: All right. <laughs> But it, the, I, I think the website's looking really good. Thank so, you. Kim, if someone wanted to get hold of us, how do they do it?
0: Well, you can go to an com and you can drop us a line on there. If you really don't want to go to the website because you, for whatever reason, you're an alien, I don't know, um, you can write to us at Gmail. It is a lost hour at gmail.com.
1: Or go to the website and just send a message. It's <sighs> going to the that. same place. Yep
0: um we also are on all the socials which you can also find links to on our website we're on twitter and facebook and instagram all at i believe it's all at an hour of your life twitter might be a lost hour um but if you it doesn't matter if you go to the website there's little buttons that you can click that'll take you to each of those things thank you kim you're welcome thank Uh, you for visiting the website in advance
1: anything about the fount
0: Yes. So also, uh, the fount is now on the website as well. It's called a minute of your life. Um, and I, there are three videos at a time stuff right now. It's kind of, um, stuff from like old kind of TikToks, Um, but stuff that sometimes this week it's, uh, cults. So we did a cult episode way back when, and these were cults that I thought were really interesting that we didn't get to talk about on the show. So there you go. Anything else? I don't think so. No,
1: it's going to be hot. It but,
0: is going to be hot. But we already
1: talked about that.
0: There may there may be a crossover episode coming in the future. Maybe. Spoiler alert. Maybe so. Really, like really it's a maybe at this point. Um All right. We're, we're in talks. Yeah,
1: well, <laughs> everything's positive right now to do that with a a live a live episode.
0: Oh, that's not even what I was talking about. I was talking yeah. about another crossover. Yeah. Anyway.
1: All right. Big All right. plans. Yeah. So, From our studios in Sugar Creek Township.
0: Thanks for spending an hour of your life with us. Lots of sources this week, uh, including livescience.com, Howard Rosenberg, uh, history.navy.mil, the sun, good old Wikipedia, Popular Mechanics, the Minor Metals Trade Association, the History Channel, CNN, thelivingmoon.com, nasflmuseum.com, that's the Naval Air Station Florida Museum, and they have a really interesting bit on Flight 19. And my personal favorite, abovetopsecret.com.